Uh, we've taken a pause from our Genesis series, As Numerous as the Stars, where we've been looking at the life of Abraham for the last two weeks. We've been uh, kind of, we dived into to the Easter festivities with Holy Week. We had Palm Sunday, and then we had Easter Sunday, and so we looked at some different passages there. But now we're back getting back into Genesis where we're looking at the life of Abraham and the promises that God gave Abraham. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 18. It's the first book in the Bible. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses from 1 to 15. Abraham has been given a promise in Genesis chapter 12. He's taken um, he's taken me, uh, kinds of things into his own hands and tried to do things, gone down to Egypt. That didn't go so well. Came back, separated with his nephew and that was kind of a good high point and then he he conquered some people rescued his nephew brought them back and now God has promised again something and now we sit here waiting for that promise to happen um, but that should kind of catch us up a lot last year though I was uh, reading a book by uh, Johan Hari he is a journalist in the UK uh, he wrote a book called Lost Connections and um, he, he, he struggles actually quite significantly with depression. Started when he was quite young. Um, so he went to the doctor and the doctor prescribed a pill that would help him, you know, get over that heaviness, that darkness, that oppression that he felt. And so he took the pill and he started to get a little bit better. And then, you know, he kind of would level off and slowly he'd start to feel worse again. So he'd go back to the doctor and he'd get another pill you know, a little bit more of a prescription, and then he would uh, feel better, and then he kept doing that process until he got to the point where he'd maxed out his medication. He'd gotten to a point where they just couldn't medicate him anymore, but he still felt that same depressive state, that same heaviness of heart, the gloom that comes. There's no joy in life. And so he decided there has to be something more than the medical story. So he started to do some research as an investigative journalist, on the, the story behind depression and what the theories are and how it works. And then he looked at alternatives to the pharmaceutical world and how they've dealt with it. And he came up with seven, seven ways in which you could actually fight depression without medication. One of those, shockingly enough, was to go for a walk. Yeah, okay, it, it sounds silly, right? But um, particularly if you would go out into nature, if you would get out of your sphere in front of the television, if you would go away from just looking at your screen or sitting in your 400 square foot little apartment and you would actually go out and you would go climb a mountain and you would look out over a lake or you would see a valley, all of a sudden you would recognize the world is not all about me. And your perspective would change. And something would change in your heart. And I think we all get that. If you've ever sat on a dark night on a dock on a calm lake and looked up at the stars and seen the northern lights, you lose yourself and are caught in awe of the grandeur of the universe. All of a sudden, I am small and the world is big. My son discovered that when we went to the H.R. McMillan Space Center and we sat in this, at the screen there where you kind of lean back and it's got this dome screen and they take you through the universe and show you Jupiter and show you Pluto and show you the galaxy and they get farther and farther and farther away. And my, and my son Lincoln came out of that little experience. He goes, Dad, I 
feel so small. Like, buddy, you are small. <laughs> but it's perspective, right? We can get outside of ourselves and we can look at the grander world. We get perspective. And, and that's what's happening here in Genesis chapter 18. That God has provided these promises to Abram and they've been waiting patiently for a long time. And Sarah is there listening and Sarah needs to have a perspective change. So let's read together Genesis chapter 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O, o Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. That's like six liters of flour. He's not making just a cake. That's a lot of dough. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return, return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. <laughs> God's funny. It's an interesting story, because we kind of get this idea that that. Abraham's kind of just, just resting there. At, at this particular time, um, if, if you've ever been to kind of a hot culture close to the equator, you, know, you have this siesta time, this time of rest in the middle of the day. You work hard in the morning, and when the sun comes up and it gets too hot, you, you rest. And, I, and I've been trying to advocate for this here. I'm like, this is, this is silly. And, and Mennonites have it right. For those of you who are Mennonites, Medachschlop is a thing. We sleep in the middle of the day. It's the way it should be. So Abraham's here having a nap. He's having a siesta. He's, he's having a, a medoch slope. And he opens his eyes and he sees three travelers coming towards him. This is a bit shocking because they shouldn't be traveling at this time of day. But, but culturally, you invite, you, you are hospitable because this is, this is a time of rest. So Abraham just does what is natural. He goes out and invites them to come and rest with him. Come, 
Take a break from your travels. The sun is hot. Come and sit with me. I will make you a small meal. Six liters of flour later. And a calf. I don't know how much these guys ate. Wow, that's a meal I want to be in. So he goes off and he prepares this meal and entertains these men. And at this point, he does not know that this is God. I mean, Moses, who wrote Genesis, gives us a clue at the beginning when he says, and the Lord appeared to him. But Abraham, in this moment, sees three ordinary men who need to be invited in and invites them in for a meal. Now, it's not the main point of the passage, but I think that we need to take a cue from a man of God who is being obedient to God, and what comes out of it is a character of hospitality. I, I think that we need to see from Abraham that our hearts, our disposition to those around us, to those passing through, should not be of closed doors and closed garages, but should be of open doors, of welcoming, of lavish meals. And in so doing, we might just entertain angels. But that's not the main point. See, God's there actually to reiterate his promise to Abraham and Sarah that they will have a son. But you see, this is not a new promise. The first promise came when Sarah was 66 years old. She has been waiting 24 years. A quarter of a century, month after month, year after year, hopefully waiting for the promise of God to come and finally have a child. 24 years of hope and disappointment. 24 years of wondering, is God's promise actually going to come true? Is God faithful? Is God good? Or is my husband crazy? And she's not a fool. At this point, she's 90 years old. Abraham's 100. It says in the text, she's, po she's post-menopausal. She understands what that means. Like, it's not happening. I know, God, you said we're going to have a son. But that's not possible. My body is telling me that. Plus, the little blue pill has not been invented yet. <laughs> My husband is old. We are well beyond the pale here. God, I know your promise says we're going to have one, but it's going to have to be somewhere other than me and somewhere other than my husband because, man, everything is saying this is done. You, you, you know what the, the problem here, though, is that Sarah's major problem, Sarah's major challenge is not practical. It's not physical. It's not pragmatic. It's theological. Sarah's problem is that she has a God too small. 
She has a God that's too small to follow through on his promises. She has a God that's too small to change her biological state. She has a God too small to turn her suffering into joy. See, when Sarah looks at the circumstance, she sees a too small God for a too big situation. And God's question is, is anything too difficult for God? See, Sarah, if you understood me better, if you understood who I was and what I'm promising and all that I'm capable of, this is nothing. But what Sarah sees is a God too small for the situation too big. And if, if I'm honest, if, if I'm honest that I am Sarah, I look at the hurdles that I have in my life and the difficulties that come along with being a, a parent or a husband or a son. And, and I, I think, how is it even possible that God could, could speak into this circumstance? How is it possible that God could change this circumstance? And I have a God too small. My heart, my mind thinks and believes in a God too small for the circumstances that I have. But, but I, I think that that's actually something that we all struggle with. We are all Sarahs. We all sit in the valley of the shadow of death or in circumstances that are beyond our control. And we say, there is no way God could do this. There is no way God could change this. And our problem isn't Practical. Our problem isn't pragmatic. Our problem is theological. We have a God too small. I think this kind of works out, though, in four kind of major areas in, in our lives as we, as we kind of work through the different uh, aspects of life. Um, we, we really start to fall back on this God too small thing uh, in four areas. The first, which is most directly related to uh, Genesis 18, is that we have a God too small when it comes to miracles. See, our, our, our circumstance, our culture, our world says... That unless you can repeat it, unless you can quantify it, unless you can measure it, it doesn't count. Unless you can diagnose the cancer and you can hit it with a particular kind of chemo, it won't count. You need to use this strategy to get rid of this depressive state, or you need to use this medicine to do that. And it's not about how big God is, it is how good we are at understanding our circumstances. And we fall into the trap of Sarah saying, like, there is nothing physical that could actually help me. There is no medicine, I have a terminal illness, there is no strategy that will get me out of this circumstance, and we come with doubt to God. Because our God is too small. 
Pete Gregg is uh, the author of the book um, God on Mute. It's in our library. Um, and he, he, he kind of wrestles through in this book on what it looks like to, to pray to, to God and trust him for things that seem absolutely impossible and wait in silence for God to respond. And, and, and in that, he talks about a particular circumstance. His wife, Sammy, was uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor um, just after their second child was born. And so um, they had to go in and take it out. One of the, one of the uh, repercussions, though, was that she had epileptic seizures. Somehow in that process, what ended up happening is her muscles would contract in incredibly painful ways. And they'd start on her limbs, her extremities, and move towards the center of her body. And the closer they got to the center of her body, the more difficult it was. If it got to her head, like she would be hospitalized. And they dealt with this for a, for a long time. One particular occasion, they were um, taking a family vacation to the Ozarks. And um, they were driving in the van with a couple of friends and their kids. And all of a sudden, Sammy looked over. And she had that look in her eye that said, here comes one. So he pu quickly pulled over, not thinking, just into a church parking lot, not really looking around. It was a white church with a little steeple. Their friends in the back knew what was happening, took their kids and kind of went off and played at this little playground that was at the church. And they sat in the car and here started the seizure in her hand. And her muscles started to convulse and the pain started to come. And like always, they started to pray. And just was moving fast up her arm. And he's thinking in his mind like, oh, this is going too fast. And we are hundreds of miles away from a hospital. There is, there is no way. What are we going to do here? And then he looks up out of the window to a sign. And on the sign it just says, there's power in the blood. A cliche Christian statement. And he just goes, okay, God. If there is power in that blood, I pray in that power that you would remove this seizure from my wife. Ah, and the seizure starts to recede. Moves down the arm as he prays and goes out of the fingers and they sit there in disbelief. And as soon as he stops praying, it starts again. But this time, no, 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 this time he's confident. No, 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 my God, my God is bigger than this thing. So now he prays in the power of Jesus, and it disappears. And as, as they're sitting in the van, and he's reflecting on this in his book, he writes these words. Inside the van, Sammy and I sat silently, <laughs> blinking at each other, still trying to make sense of what had just happened, you would really have to go through hundreds of seizures, praying each time without success, to have any idea how stunned we were by what had just transpired. Then in a low voice, Sammy told me something equally bewildering. During the seizure she had for the first time ever, experienced the presence of Jesus. Actually with her in the pain. I gazed across at the poster, 
so religiously cliche and yet suddenly so relevant and profound to me. This was the first time we had seen any impact on Sammy's condition physiologically through prayer. What's more, in some mystical way that she found hard to put into words, Sammy had also encountered Jesus in the midst of it all. After years of ineffectual praying, this incident have given, has given us a dramatic insight into some of the spiritual dynamics at work behind the grim neurological realities of Sammy's condition. See, in that moment, Pete understood that my God is bigger than my wife's physiology. That my God is grander than the medical system and the science that says you will live with this for all of your life. That my God can change the very fabric of reality so that he is made great. So that I would praise him. And he'll do it with his presence by the power of the blood of Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, when we come for prayer, when we come to the elders and ask, would you, would you pray for me? Here is the circumstance that I think I cannot manage, that the world tells me cannot be fixed, that this is unmanageable. We come to prayer knowing that God changes reality. That he holds together the very universe that we live in. And that at his will, it can change. That by his power, we can be healed. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? But you know, it actually moves further than that. Sometimes God is silent and we suffer and we struggle and we wait and our knees get weak and we cannot see the light in front of us. But even there, we need to ask the same question. See, in our sufferings, we can start to believe in a God that is too small. As we, as we work through the difficulties of life and the, the challenges in marriage or the difficulties with a diagnosis that's going to stay with us forever and we seek God for a miracle, for healing, and He, in His providence and His sovereignty, does not provide us the answer that we want, we can start to think our God is too small to do this. There is no way that he can take this dark circumstance, this deep valley, this, this deep waters, these high waves, and he cannot redeem it. There is no way that the difficulty that I am facing that is in front of me, the hurdle that I need to jump over, it's too big. And God is too small. I cannot continue being faithful in this way. 
knowing that the rest of life will look like this. There's no way God could redeem this difficult circumstance, this loss. And we have to ask ourselves again, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Job went through that. He wrestled through the realities of suffering intensely. A man of wealth, with livestock and healthy family, found himself alone with his wife after his children had all died and his fields had been taken away. And then he had boils all over his skin and he sat there wrestling with God. What have I done? Why is this happening to me? Am I not righteous? Are you not good, God? How is it possible that you could do this to me if I'm righteous? How is it possible that you could allow this? And his friends come along and kind of say, well, you know, maybe, maybe you're sinning here. Maybe you need to repent there. Oh, you know, this is the way that it is. And Job wrestles deeply to the point of contemplating the value of his own life. And then, and then God shows up. And our, our expectation, our, our desire, our, our hope is that God will say in that moment, here's why. Number one, it's going to do this. Number two, it's going to do this. Number three, it's going to do this. And then Job will go, oh, I understand your reasoning. I get it. Instead, though, God just chose him himself. Job chapter 38, 4 to 7. When God comes, he says, okay, Job, okay, you're wrestling. So stand up. I want you to take this like a man. You think you got the answers? Okay. Let's just, let's just ask you a few questions. So where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? What was the foundation? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You see, instead of Job getting an answer as here's one, two, three reasons why, God just peeled back the stars in the sky and said, look at me. Look at how grand I am. Look at what I accomplished. Did you do that? Did, did you create that? Did you, did you stop the sea where it was supposed to go? Did you create the cliffs there? Do you hold the stars in the sky? Do you, have you numbered the hairs on your head? Do you hold the history of the world in your hands? So, so Job, the answer is I am bigger than your suffering. I am grander than your difficulty. Trust me. The Apostle Paul, after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, 
went through incredible suffering, being flogged multiple times, being stoned until people thought he was dead, beaten, mocked, scorned, run out of town. And, and, and when he reflects on that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, 17 to 18, he says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He looked at the suffering that he had experienced. He looked at the possible suffering coming ahead. And he said, it is not worth comparing with what I know is in God. It is not worth comparing knowing what Christ has done for me and what is waiting for me now on the other side of death. Do to me what you will. Whatever the circumstances are, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will come. See, what Paul understood is a big God. A God who could take the darkest suffering, the most vile situations and make them light, could take darkness and make it light, could take stone and make it flesh, could do what he wills, when he wills, how he wills for the good of those whom he loves. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? But, but you know, we, we actually have another corner of our heart that kind of gets pulled away. Not only do we, you know, sometimes come as Sarah to, to miracles and we come as Sarah to, to uh, our sufferings, but we actually sometimes come as Sarah in our obedience. Like God asks us to do hard things. Jesus isn't light when he tells us what it is that is good and right and holy. Just, just one example, Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. That, like, that, that's hard. Our culture says, look, you don't want to work past 65. I mean, it used to be freedom 55, but now with housing prices going up, maybe we need freedom 65. You need to work yourself to the bone until 65, and then you get all this time off. Like, just gather it in like a, like a chipmunk. Like, make those cheeks as puffy as possible. Go store those nuts away. Get those storehouses. Come on. Let's, like, eat Drink and be merry now. Make sure your bank account's full. Make sure you got a good investment advisor. Because when 65 comes, you better have money in the bank. Because you don't, I mean, you don't know what's going to come. Maybe you can't work. Maybe you get a critical illness. Maybe, maybe you have a disease and all of a sudden you want to get an MRI quicker. But that's going to take money out of your pocket. Where's that going to come from? Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth. Ooh. But, 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 but God, 
are, are, you, are you bigger than my money? Are you bigger than my investment? Are you bigger than the house that I own or the car that I own or the cabin that I own? Are you, are you bigger than the stuff that I've accumulated? See, when we believe what Jesus has talked about and we are obedient in it, what we're saying is we're saying, God, you're bigger than the circumstance that I see out here. And I'm going to trust that when you say, don't be anxious about anything, because I, being a good father, give good gifts, and because I clothe the lilies and I feed the sparrows and you are my children, how much more will I lavish upon you? If you, being twisted in your hearts, can give good gifts to your kids, how much me, being pure in my heart and righteous and good, would give good gifts to you? It's hard to be obedient to what God calls us to. And we won't if we have a small God. Is anything too difficult for the Lord. Lastly, though, we can have this small God syndrome in salvation. See, we can, we can look at our neighbors, we can look at our culture, we can look at those within our family who reject Christ and don't understand the gospel, and we can say, they are too far gone. Or maybe it's not out there, maybe it's in here. Now we say, listen, Jason, if you knew the things that I've done, the way that I think, the private thoughts of my mind, you would be like, yeah, 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 no, 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 you don't understand. I'm beyond saving. My heart is too hard. I know better. I'm enlightened. And man, we fall into that trap. We look around the world and we see the way that things go and, and bombings and on Easter, or we see um, anti-Christian kind, of kind of things going on out there, or that's what we perceive, and we think, oh no, God's, like, God's too small to do anything with that. He can't change culture. No, 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 that, no, no, he can't do that. We need to act in fear, because darkness is stronger than light. That's just a small God problem. See, the disciples kind of understood that in Matthew 19. You know, they're walking along with Jesus and seeing all these miracles happen, and they're getting really excited, and then a rich man comes. And the disciples are thinking, okay, this is a righteous guy, because if, if you have stuff, that means that God has favor with you. That's at least how they would have seen the world. If you've got fields, if you've got... If you've got material possessions, and that means God's favor is on you. And this rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to, to uh, have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know, you need to give up everything and follow me. And the rich man said, I, 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 I can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. So he leaves, and the disciples start to ask Jesus, like, what's, what's going on here? Like, that guy, that guy should be in, shouldn't he? He's got all the markers. 
And Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 19, 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible. Is anything too difficult for God? Is your neighbor too difficult for God? Is your brother or sister too difficult for God? Is it too difficult for God to take a stone heart and make it flesh? Is it too difficult for God to take a mind that is bent towards his hatred and turn it to love? Is it too difficult for God to open the eyes of the blind, to raise the dead? He did it with me. He did it with me. I, I, I spent 12 hours in a vehicle this weekend with my unbelieving brother. Hey, where'd you go for 12 hours? Well, that's a different story. We just drive. It's like what we like to do. Talking to him a little bit about Jesus when I had the opportunity and all, all, all I want all I want is for him to see God as glorious, to see what Christ has done on the cross and worship him rightly. And I have to ask myself, am I Sarah? Am I engaging with my brother? Am I, am I, am I looking at him and seeing, you know what? This is past. This is too hard. God cannot do anything. Or will I believe his promises? Will I believe in a God who is bigger than I could possibly imagine? Who holds me together and knows the hairs on my brother's head. And knows him more intimately than he knows himself. And trust that even in this difficulty, God is bigger that I know he is. See, that's, that's Sarah's problem here. What she sees is impossibility. She sees physical impossibility. And God says, you don't know me yet. Because my promise isn't just to give you Isaac. My promise just isn't to give you one son or to give you a nation my promise expands generation to generation until a point in time where I will bring people back to myself so that they can spend eternity with me. My promise extends beyond just you, Sarah, and your physical ability, but it relies on me and my faithfulness, my capacity. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
Oh, I, I pray that he rolls back the heavens and he shows each of us how big and glorious he is and that we can then operate in that faith and not laugh, but step out in confidence, knowing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will. Not might. Will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you just show us how... Would you, would you show us how big you are? Would you give us a glimpse of your glory? Would you give these, these human minds and these human hearts just, just a taste of who you are? Oh, Jesus, would we see you in your radiance? And would we worship you then because of that? Father, would you help us in our obedience? Would you help us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we struggle along in obedience to you in the difficult circumstances of life? Father, would we rely on you? Would we remember that where we laugh, you are faithful? Where we doubt, you are bigger. Oh God, would you just strengthen us and give us a taste of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.